1 Samuel 30 tonight. That's where we'll be. 1 Samuel 30. For the last several months, I've, I've known things have been off, really, really off in my spiritual life. <clears throat> really, they've been off in every way your spiritual life can be off. My, my Bible reading was off and for my personal studies. My prayer was off. My sermon preparation was off. I even I felt like I was off in my preaching. Everything was just off. And for the most part, I was able to kind of justify it because everything in life was busy and, and life was off. I mean, we were moving. Uh, we had a wedding to plan and to execute. Both of those take significant amount of time and energy. Um, and so, of course, everything is off when you're focused on things like that. But now we're all moved in. Uh, the wedding was beautiful. The happy couple are home from their honeymoon, uh, moving on with their life, and, and everything is is still essentially off. It seems like in my spiritual life. So Monday evening, I was piddling around on YouTube after supper and, and came across an audio book I've read called "This Present Darkness" by Frank Peretti. Now I, I've read. This book, I own the book, and I've read the book probably ten times. In fact, the book I own, it's all worn out and broke apart because of how often I've read it. But the content of the book seemed really appropriate considering the time we're living in. Now, if you've never read This Present Darkness, uh, it's a fiction book about spiritual warfare. Uh, it emphasizes the reality of demons, their activity in the world, and the importance of prayer. And when I started listening to the book, it wasn't really taking into consideration everything being off. I was just listening to the book because I, I liked the book. But the more I listened, the more I realized why everything was off in my spiritual life. And I had sort of let the enemy gain ground in my life and, and sort of take things from me. And I don't like it when that happens. This isn't the first time it's happened. And sadly, it probably won't be the last time it's happened. But I, I don't like it. I'm not content to let the enemy keep what he's taken from me. I'm, I'm not content to let the enemy take ground in my life and, and and just sort of keep it. So tonight we're going to look at a story about David. And it was just prior to him becoming king. He comes home to where he's been living and he finds the enemy has taken essentially everything he had. And we learn some steps David took to regain what the enemy had taken. And I believe this passage gives us the best instructions on how to take back ground the enemy has taken. Uh, because most likely I'm, I'm not the only one who has given up ground to the enemy in their lives in, in one way or another. But even if I am, uh, this passage really I was something I was studying for myself and, and sharing it as an overflow. Hopefully you get something out of it, but this was something I needed for me. So 1 Samuel 30, uh, we're going to look at the first 20 verses. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Page 233, if you have a pew Bible. It says, when this happened, when or then it happened, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had carried out an attack on the Negev and on Ziklag, and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. They took captive the women and all who were in it, from the small to the great, without killing anyone, and drove them off and went their way. 
When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive. Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Also David was in great distress because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David felt strengthened in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band of raiders? Will I overtake them? And the Lord said to him, Pursue, for you will certainly overtake them, and you will certainly rescue everyone. So David left, he and the six hundred men who were with him. And they came to the brook of Besor, where some who were left stayed behind. But David pursued, he and the four hundred men, two hundred who were too exhausted to cross the brook of Besor, stayed behind. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate. And they provided him water to drink. And they also gave him a slice of fig cake and two cakes of raisins. And he ate, and then his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water in three days and three nights. Then David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. And my master abandoned me when I became sick three days ago. We carried out an attack on the Negev of the Cherethites. And upon that which belongs to Judah. Upon the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. Then David said to him, will you bring me down to this band of raiders? And he said, swear to me by God, you will not kill me or hand me over to my master. And I will bring you down to this band. Now when he brought them down, behold, they were dispersed over all the land, eating and drinking and celebrating because all the great plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines, from the land of Judah. And David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, plunder or anything. That they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David captured all the sheep and the cattle. Which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said this is David's plunder. title of the message is what the, regaining what the enemy has taken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. Wonderful and worthy. We are thankful for the opportunity we have to gather. Study your word. Sing your praise. Help us tonight. As we look at your word. To have ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. Speak to us in this time. Uh, Help us not to push back or help us not to resist. Father, if we have given ground to the enemy, let your spirit take the word and make it very clear to us. This is what's gone on. And let us take the steps we see in this passage and regain what the enemy has taken. Lord, just as David regained it all, we can as well. We don't have to live in a place where the enemy has gained ground in our lives. Fill us with your spirit. Strengthen us according to your word. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Which you may be seated. Now let me give you a brief review of the life of David up to this point to catch you up where he's at uh, at this point in his life. Saul has been rejected by God as king over Israel and God has chosen David as Saul's replacement. Now as you can imagine, Saul was not overly thrilled about this and he has tried on numerous occasions to have David killed. After several narrow escapes, David determines to escape out of Israel and he takes his men And he decides to go live among 
the Philistines. While he was there, he and his men were servants of a Philistine prince named Achish, who had allowed David to live in the city of Ziklag. David stayed in the land of the Philistines for about 16 months, and while he was there, he would raid into the land of the Geshonites, the Gezerites, and the Amalekites, and then he would lie to Achish and say he had raided into the lands of Israel. Well, as time goes on, the Philistines decide to go to war with Israel. And so they, they muster their army, Israel musters their army. And when Achish brings his army to join with the other Philistine lords, he brings David with him, thinking David has already made himself kind of stink in the eyes of Israel. What would finalize it other than have David ride to war with the Philistines against the Israelites and then he would belong to Achish and his people forever. When David arrives, the other lords of the Philistines are not happy about it. They look out, they see David, they know the stories, they know he's cut the head off Goliath, they know the song that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. They also know that there's a breach between Saul and David, but to their mind, this is a different issue. What they think is, rather than David just finalizing that breach by going to battle with the Philistines, what David is going to do is in the middle of the battle, he is going to turn on the Philistines and join with Saul and repair the breach. And so they want David to be sent away. So David and his men are sent away and they go back to Ziklag where they had been staying. And when they arrived in Ziklag, they find everything is taken. Their city where they've been taken, where they have been living, has been burned with fire. All that they had is gone. And from this passage where we are, we, we learn four, we learn how to regain what the enemy has taken, essentially. We learn, first, we have to recognize what the enemy was taken. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites carried out an attack on the Degeb on Ziklag and overthrown Ziklag, burned it with fire, and they took captive the women, all who were in it from the small to the great, without killing anyone, and drove them off, and they went their way. Then David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire. Their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Once David comes to the city, he finds it in rubble. He realizes what has happened. They have essentially lost everything. All of their possessions have been taken. All of their family members have been taken. All of their crops. Everything. Everything they had was gone at this point. Now for David, it would be impossible to not recognize what the enemy has taken. It was obvious. The city was in ruins. The families were gone. But for us, it's not always as easy as it is with David. Right? There are times where we may not know we have given ground to the enemy. We may not even recognize things are gone. Or if we do recognize things are, are not the way they should be, maybe they're off, we start to, to rationalize. Or we act like it's not off. Or we act like it's really not that big of a deal or we'll catch up. Or we refuse, just flat out refuse to say something is gone. Something is, is not as it should be. But if we keep that up, if we refuse to recognize what the enemy has taken, if we refuse to admit something is gone, something is off, something is wrong, then we are never going to be able to take back from the enemy what he has taken from us. So what kind of things could the enemy take from us that might not be obvious? Well, we, we would probably think of things like, well, Bible reading, prayer, church attendance, pursuit of holiness, service to Christ... Those are obvious sort of things. 
But I, I think, I, as I've studied this and as I've lived through this and as I've thought about this through the years, one of the things I realize is we lose often, most often, we lose something deeper than the actions themselves. And, and I'll use myself as an example. I mean, clearly I was coming to church all of this time, or otherwise everyone would have known something was off. I, I was still reading my Bible. I keep up on my daily Bible reading. I, I, I prepared sermons and was preaching sermons. So it wasn't something obvious, something that you could look at and say, gosh, I haven't read my Bible in a month. It wasn't anything like that. It can be, but I think there's something deeper than that, something even more important than that, that, that gets lost long before the actions themselves are lost. And so what I want to do is I want to ask you three questions and, and to see if we've lost anything, if we've let the enemy take something from our lives. So first question, how is my love for Jesus? Now, we, we know Jesus said the most important commandment was to love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we think about loving Jesus, we need to think about it as the why of our service. Right? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we pray? Why do we come to church? Why do we serve Jesus in any way in which we serve Him? The why is at least as important as the what, if not more important. Right? We, we know this from our study in Revelation. Jesus says to the church in, in uh, Ephesus, I know your deeds, your labor, your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have put those who call themselves apostles to the test, and they are not, and you found them to be false. You have perseverance, you have endured on account of my name, and have not become weary. That, that is a... That is a good church. Those people have done a lot of things. Right? They, they are working, they're laboring, they're enduring, they're, they're suffering, they're calling out evil, they're putting people to the test. They have not given up when things have gotten hard. They are, they are doing the stuff. Right? So whatever we would say, this is what you do as a disciple of Jesus, as an individual, they were doing it. Whatever you say, a church of Jesus Christ, this is what they do. That's what they were doing. They were doing all of the right stuff, but Jesus still had something against them, he said. You have left your first love. They were still doing all the right things, but the why of their service wasn't right. They weren't doing it because they loved Jesus. Maybe they were doing it because they had always done it. Maybe they were doing it because somebody might talk if they didn't go to church. Maybe they were doing it because they felt like they were supposed to. But whatever the reason, their why was off. And I think a good way to ask ourselves about if our why is off is to ask it in this way. Do I get to read my Bible or do I have to read my Bible? Do I get to come to church? Or do I have to come to church? Do I get to spend time in prayer? Or do I have to spend time in prayer? Do I get to serve Jesus in one way or another? Or do I have to serve Jesus in one way or another? The why. The why matters. How is our love for Jesus? Is all we do for Jesus 
Is it sparked and motivated because we love Jesus? Second question, how is my zeal for Jesus? Zeal is excitement, enthusiasm, and our service to Jesus. And we should think of zeal as the how of our service. How do we do what we do? Are we, again, are, are we excited about it? Do we look forward to it? Are we passionate in it? We all know. We can read our Bible, pray, come to church, and not be excited about it. You've done it. You've read through your Bible like, and then it happened on the day that David and his man came to Ziklag on the third day. And then to give, I mean, you've done that. You've you've prayed and every so often you stop to check Facebook or check your phone in one thing or another. You've you've come to church and mentally thought about other things you should be doing, things you need to do as soon as service is out. We we, we have all done that. The the how we do, well, it, it also matters. God's word says we're not to be lagging behind in diligence, but fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Fervent is, is passionate, excitedly. Not we have to, we get to, we're looking forward to it. And this idea of being fervent in spirit in our service to the Lord is, is the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. The psalmist said he was glad when it was said to him, let us go into the house of the Lord. God's Word speaks of, of prayers pouring out our souls to the Lord. Of, of the Bible as being sweeter than honey to our taste. Can we say that all of those things are true for us? Are we glad when it's time for us to gather in the house of the Lord? Is our time in the Word? Is it, is it a sweet time? Because the Word is sweet. Are we Pouring out our souls and our spirits unto God. I mean, we know there should be a great deal of zeal and excitement and enthusiasm in our worship and our service to Jesus. And yet in, in our day it seems acceptable to be excited and enthusiastic about anything but Jesus. Do we still have passion in our service to Jesus? Is there a stirring in our hearts when we sing worship songs to the Lord? Is, is it still exciting when we're reading in the Bible and know God is speaking? Are we passionate when we're praying to God and, and we're talking to Him? Or are, are these the routines we go through? Is there an excitement? Or is it just doing what we've always done. We go through the motion and look more, more excitedly toward the end of our time than in the, the, the getting to have that time. Have we lost, has the enemy taken our, our zeal for Jesus? And then thirdly, how is my hope in Jesus? Biblical hope is a well-grounded, well-founded expectation. Jesus will do what He has said he will do. Expectation is absolutely a, a key aspect of a biblical hope. So think of hope as the, the what of service. What 
if anything, do we expect to happen in our service and our devotion to Jesus? What do we expect when we pray? What do we expect when we come into God's house? What do we expect when we open God's Word and let it speak? What do we expect in whatever we do for Jesus? Those who are filled with a biblical hope expect Jesus will do what He has said He will do. I like this verse. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. But the Lord said, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say this mulberry tree be uprooted be planted in the sea and it would obey you. The key thought from that particular passage is a little faith in a big God can accomplish great things. Do we believe that? Do we expect that? I mean, do we, when we come into the Word, do we expect it's going to renew our minds and transform our lives as it says it will? When we pray, do we expect God hears and answers, works on behalf of our prayers. When we come to church, do we expect it to be a time where God works in us and through us and for us to encourage us, to strengthen us, to make us more like Jesus? Have we lost our hope in Jesus doing in us and through us and for us the many wonderful things He has promised? Is there something Missing has the enemy taken something from your spiritual life, your your worship of Jesus, your service to Jesus? And if you would say, yeah, I see things missing, then the second is, is miss what the enemy has taken. After David and the people discovered things were gone, David and the people who were with him in verse 4 raised their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. I mean, that's, that's some serious mourning and crying going on. They cried over their loss until they just couldn't cry anymore. Have you ever cried so hard and so long you basically felt like you ran out of tears? That's the picture being painted here. They missed what the enemy had taken. They, they wanted it back. If we're going to take back what the enemy has taken, we have to miss what is lost. If we don't miss what is lost, we won't try to take it back. We know this in physical things. I mean, probably on a semi-regular basis, we misplace things. Right? Maybe we set our phones down in the wrong place. I, I'm, a, I'm a routine person. I put my phone in the same place Every day in the same, it's in my office. There's three places I put it in my office. Every day I'm here, it's in one of those three places. At home, I put it in two places and it's always in one of those two places. Do you know what happens if I'm talking to someone and set my phone down in a place that's not one of those two places at home? I can't find it. I go into a panic. Because I always put it in those one of those two places. And when I can't find it, I start to miss it and I start to look for it. But you know, there's other things. Like I, I, when I'm preaching, I always carry a rag for my glasses in case they get fogged up. But if I go home and set this down somewhere and can't find it, I'm not going to get overly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time looking for it because I've got another one almost like it 
in my computer bag and another one in the desk drawer in my office. And then I've got one that I carry in the van and I've got one at the house. So losing this isn't going to cause me to do a whole lot of effort to try to find it. I'll be like, man, oh well. And I'm going to move on with my life. But my phone is really important. And so I'm going to miss it and look for it. It's the same with this. If we look over what's missing in our life and we say, yes, those things are missing, we're going to, we're going to, we are going to respond in one of two ways. We are either going to respond and go, oh, man, oh, well. And we're going to continue on with life. Or we're going to be burdened and bothered about what we have lost. If we do not miss what the enemy has taken, we will not. We will never, ever get it back. Do, do we miss the love for Jesus, that first love we once had? Do we miss the zeal for Jesus we once had? Do we miss the hope in Jesus we once had? If, if we do not miss them, we will not seek to take them back. Later in his life, David would experience the sort of spiritual loss we're talking about here tonight. It would be all his fault. Time when the kings go out to war, David would stay behind. He would take a nap and he would walk along the roof of his palace and he would see a young woman bathing. He would lust after her in his heart. He would send for her. He would sleep with her. And when she turned up pregnant because of him, he would orchestrate events to to murder her husband, take her to be his wife, to cover it all up and look like he was a righteous person. But God saw it all and God was not pleased. And in that moment, David began to realize once he was confronted that he had lost some things. And he wrote a song talking about what he had lost and in his response to it. And I I like some of the verses he says. Chapter 51, verse 11, Psalm 51, 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. If you read the psalm, you know this is really a lot of, in so many ways, this is David's greatest fear. He's not he's not as concerned about God killing him as he is about just losing God's presence in his life. This is probably one of the reasons David was called a man after God's own heart. So a question for us, a hard question. When we have allowed the enemy to gain ground and take things from our life, what is our first and greatest concern? Is it. A judgment from God we may reap upon ourselves or is it the loss of our intimacy and our fellowship with God? I mean, that that says a lot about our relationship with God in, in, in all things, if it's that way. But as disciples of Jesus, as people who know, as Romans says, the, that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. When we have let the enemy take things from our life, Our first fear shouldn't be of the hammer of God falling upon us. It should be of the loss of fellowship, the loss of intimacy, the loss of our relationship with Him. This should be our primary concern. David goes on. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. David had known the joy of being delivered by God in in so many ways and so many times. David's sin had caused him to lose the joy 
Now he longed for God to restore it to him. Is there joy in your salvation? Is there joy in your relationship with Jesus? I mean, again, there's there's supposed to be. This is New Testament stuff. The the love, joy, and peace that comes from the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Do we have this sense of joy? Not again, not joy because the world is working as we think it ought to. That's that's fine. That's good. I'm certainly not opposed to that. But I'm talking about a, a joy when you're in prison and you've been beaten and you're singing to the Lord at midnight. I mean a joy when everything around you is all broke apart, but you're still close to Jesus, and man, that's that's so good. Do we have that kind of a joy in our life? We, we're meant to. We, and if we don't, we should miss it. David goes on. You not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You not take pleasure in burnt offering. Now, that, that is such an important statement. David has committed adultery. David has tried to cover it up. David has had a man murdered. He's betrayed so many people along this. And and here's what he says. The number one thing you want from me isn't to make a lot of sacrifices. Which, in the Old Testament time, that's a big statement, right? Because in the Old Testament, they made a lot of... If you've read through Leviticus, they made a lot of burnt offerings and sacrifices. But... For his sin, because he had let the enemy take some things, this isn't the primary response God wants from him. He wants something else. Now, the reason this is important to us, now we don't make the kind of sacrifices they did. right? We don't bring animals in here and kill them and burn them on the altar and do all of that, and we are all thankful for that. But what we're tempted to do, we say, oh, I've I've let these things, I've let the enemy take these things from me. I've, I've drifted, I've done this. And rather than just regretting it and and trying to to pick up and move on, we start trying to atone for our sin. Well, I'm I'm going to give 20% instead of 10%. And and I'm going to read through the Bible in 90 days. And and I'm going to pray three hours a day. And I'm going to fast every day. Now listen, all of those things are good. I'm all about doing all of those things if we feel that's the Lord leading us. But... If that is our way to atone for what we have done, it is a failure. It is worse than a failure. It is pushing us further away from God. When we have let the enemy take these things from us, God does not want us to atone for our sin. Jesus has atoned for our sin. What God wants is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. He wants us to miss what the enemy has taken. He wants us to regret the decisions we made that led us to this point. Do we? Do we regret? Do we miss what the enemy has taken? David and his people missed what was lost and they wanted it back. Until we come to the place where we miss What has been lost, we will never seek to take it back. As long as we are content in complacement in our spiritual lives, we will never seek to change. But if we recognize we've lost some things, 
and we miss those things that we've let the enemy take, then the next thing we must do is seek strength and guidance from God. The next part of the story is pretty interesting. David had lost just as much as everyone else had, but in verse 6 we see David was in great distress because the people spoke of stoning him. All the people were embittered, each one, because of his sons and his daughters. And and there's really a, a powerful truth which I don't have as much time to get into as I would maybe want to. Um, there's two, I guess you could say, two lessons in this. Some people, when they realize things have been taken, they've lost these things, rather than turn to God and they're missing, they, they get embittered against others. Right? They, they, they find someone to blame. This was all David's fault. It's kind of their mindset. right? They, they followed David. And David brought them to Ziklag. And by coming to Ziklag has caused this to happen. We ought to kill David. It's all his fault. And I think sometimes what we need to do is ask ourselves, and if I've lost this, how is my relationship with others? Do I feel embittered toward other people? Chances are, if I feel embittered toward other people, it's because I've let the enemy take something and I'm blaming them rather than taking responsibility for myself. Because we can be sure from what God's Word tells us, bitterness is never from God. right? Bitterness is not a fruit of the Spirit. It is a root of defilement. So the bitterness we feel toward our fellow man, toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, is not from God. Where does it come from then? Well, here it comes because we have lost some things. We have had parts to play in what we've lost because they, had, they, they didn't have to follow David, did they? They made choices and their choices resulted in this loss. And now they're blaming David. So bitterness is, is not from God. And if we're not careful, we will let our loss turn to bitterness toward those around us that we want to blame. Because David becomes a, an easy scapegoat this point. But David doesn't do this. At the end of verse 6 it says, David felt strengthened in the Lord his God. They become bitter. David begins to seek the Lord. He seeks the Lord for strength, for encouragement. Then David said to Abathar the priest in verse 7, the son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. The, the, the ephod was basically what you had to seek from seek the Lord. David's desire is for God, to be with God, to inquire of God what it is he should do. So David strengthens himself in the Lord. David then inquires of God, shall I pursue this band of raiders, and will I overtake them? How do I get out of this mess? Will I win if I go after them? He's asking God how to regain what the enemy has taken. This, too, is exactly what we're supposed to do. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord. Great encouragement. In this, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. If you've ever been here when I've talked about this passage before, I've compared it to my 
platoon sergeant when I arrived in the 101st Airborne Division. He took an instant disliking to me, and I went to a position of leadership right away, and I didn't have a clue what I was supposed to do. And so I was forever saying, hey, Sergeant Keeler, what do I do here? What do I do there? And his pat response was always the same. Ross, are you stupid? Are you just trying to make me mad? Right? There was there was no right response to that question either. And so I hated going to him for advice. I didn't know what to do. He knew what needed to be done. But there was going to be reproach uh, given to me long before I could ever get any sort of guidance from him. And the point here is God's not like that. We have this thing, Lord, I've let the enemy take this and I don't know how to get it back. God's not going to reply. What, are you stupid? Or are you just trying to make me mad? That's not God. Instead, he, he gives to us generously without that reproach. But... He says we must ask in faith without doubting. Now, faith as it's meant here is different than what I've often understood. it. I've always kind of understood faith meant I believe God has the right answer. And there is an element of that in this. But that's not all. Also, what this means is when I say when we ask God in faith what to do, we're not just saying, God, I believe you have the answer. We're saying, God, I'm going to do whatever you give me as the answer. God, I need, I've got a path left and right. And you show me. And if you show me right, I'm going right. And if you show me left, I'm going left. That's faith. A commitment, a pre-commitment to do God's will, whatever that will may be. What I fear for many of us, is often what we do is we seek God's wisdom. And we seek His guidance, but we want it for consideration. Okay, God, lead me and show me what to do. And then God gives me this, and then we're like, well, okay, so this is what I feel like God's saying. And But Red, I talked to Red, and he said something else. And Joe said this, so which of these makes the most sense to me? But God doesn't give us advice for consideration. He gives it to us for application. God is the sovereign, omniscient God of the universe. He knows what's right. He expects us to have faith in that. And when He says, go left, we would go left, even though everything within us may want to go right. When we say, God, how do I get back what I've let the enemy take? Then God says, this is what you're supposed to do. We get up and say, yes, that's what I'm going to do no matter what. And when we aren't have that kind of commitment, we're, we're double-minded. And we're driven by whatever comes along. Right? If I don't have this priority commitment to do what God says then I might let Joe talk me out of it if Joe seems to make more sense. I might let what Red says talk me out of it if it makes more sense. Or I'll go with whoever I talk to last. I, yes, Lord, that's what I'm going to do. Then to talk to Joe. I think you should do that. I think that's probably right, Joe. Then I talk to Red. I think you should do this. Well, I think Red's probably right. I should probably do that. And then we're just tossed about. Do we, do we know people like that? We do. We've probably been people like that. And the issue of that is a lack of faith. A, a lack of God's right, no matter what He says. And when we believe God, He's right, and I'm going to do what He says, then we take we we will receive the guidance we need. Now, David, David had this kind of faith. How, how do I know? David inquired of the Lord. You will certainly rescue. You will certainly overtake them. You will certainly rescue everyone. Then look at the first of verse nine. So he left. David believed, and so David did exactly. What God told him to do. God knew David would make that decision. So he gave him the guidance. And David took off to do it. When we seek God's help. We must be willing to do what God says needs to be done. No matter what that is. 
If we do not, we will never be able to regain what the enemy has taken. But if we do, if we recognize what's missing, if we miss what's missing, if we seek God for comfort and guidance, we receive His guidance, we must lastly fight to regain what the enemy has taken. David leaves in verse 9. In verse 17, David, 16, David arrives, finds them eating and drinking. Verse 17, he fights. And notice he slaughtered them from the twilight till evening the next day. God told David what to do. David went and did it and he, he fought. And he got back exactly what he had lost. What God, he did what God said and received all God had promised to him. Once we find out what God wants us to do to regain what the enemy has taken, we must be like David and, and leave. Move out and go and do it. The problem, though, is sometimes we, we've done all of this. We recognize, we miss, we seek. God gives us the guidance. And then we think, I can't. I, I, I just can't do that. So for these last few minutes, I want to show us that it's never a matter of can't. If God calls us to it, it's never a matter of can't, right? So, like Philippians says, For it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to work for His good pleasure. God's working in us to give us the desire to do what pleases Him. So that desire, yes, Lord, I, I want it back. That's from God. He's working in us. Then God says, go do this. And God gives us the ability to do the work for His good pleasure. The, the Greek word used for work there, it means to energize. And the idea is once God gives us the desire, He also energizes us and gives us the power to do what He wants us to do. So therefore, any desire God gives to us to do, God will give us the ability to see it through. Any guidance God gives to us to do, God will give us the power to see it through. God, it's never a matter of cannot. It's always a matter of we will not. Another passage, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. We're familiar with this passage. But notice, you know, God is able. That's such a tremendous passage. God can do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. We know about that. We think about that in relation to prayer and things. But notice the last of the verse. According to the power that works within us. God is not only able to do more abundantly beyond all we ask or think out there somewhere. God is also able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think in here, in us and through us and for us. That more abundant beyond power already resides in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So far beyond what we think we can do, even with God's help, we're able to do far beyond that because God is going to help us. The testimony of God's Word is clear. God can and will enable us to do the incredible and He will enable us to take back what the enemy has taken. But the key is we have to do it. We have to leave. We have to get up and go. We have to act on what God has said to do. Nothing will change until we act in faith 
and seek to take back what the enemy has taken in the way God has told us. And this one last thing. David slaughtered them from twilight until evening the next day. They fought all night, all the next day, and until evening again. It was a long, hard battle to take back what the enemy had taken. And if there is a lesson and a key truth for our message for us, it's this. We cannot regain in a moment what has been taken over time. Through the years I've counseled with lots of, you see this in a lot of ways, but particularly with married couples. And you'll have couples, I have couples come in and they've spent the last 10 years with all this dysfunction in their marriage. And they've done all of these things to cause all of these problems. And they don't say it in this way, but the, the idea is they sit down and it's like, preacher, you've got 30 minutes to fix what we've spent the last 10 years messing up. And it just doesn't work that way. And it's the same way when we think to try to take back what the enemy has taken. The enemy didn't, we weren't full force, all in, went to bed, woke up, and the enemy came and took stuff. It happened a little at a time, a little here and a little there and a little here and a little there. Can't be fixed in 30 minutes or less. Can't be fixed with one sermon and one night of prayer. It takes a lot of intentional effort on our part. David and his men swung swords for close quarter combat for somewhere around 24 hours before they won the battle. I can't imagine how tiring that was. I I can't imagine how sore they were. But they fought. And they kept fighting and they didn't give up and they didn't let up and they didn't back up and they didn't stop until verse 18. They recovered all the Amalekites had taken. Nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great sons or daughters, plunder or anything. They eventually got it all back, but only because they fought and kept fighting. When we fight to regain what the enemy has taken, we we can. I, I believe with all my heart, we can regain everything we've lost, everything we've given up, every ounce of ground we've given to the enemy. I believe we can take back. But it's not going to be quickly and it's not going to be easy. The enemy is not just going to give back what he has fought so hard to take. He will fight us to keep it. He will fight long. He will fight hard. He will fight dirty. It will be exhausting. It will be stressful. But if we don't quit, if we keep on keeping on, eventually, through the power of the Spirit within us, we will overcome We will be the victors and we will recover all the enemy has taken. And nothing, whether small or great or anything at all, will be missing. We can regain what the enemy has taken if we don't quit. Let's pray.